so <coughs> uh, <coughs> sort of uh, pre- preview time at uh, the cinema sort of thing um, <coughs> I'm going to give four talks over the next few days <coughs> and um, in a way the next three in, in starting with this one ki- kind of form sort of a set um, but what I'm going to talk about the relationship we have with practice uh, tonight. Tomorrow, um, I'm going to introduce a new, a new possible way of practicing, <coughs> and the night after that, um, talking about our relationship with knowing and not knowing, and also with conceptuality and the whole thinking mind and the conceptual mind. And then after that, uh, another possible new practice, and talk about that. But the reason, <coughs> the talk I'm going to want to talk about tonight, and the relationship we have with practice, um, so hoping that you can, like the opening talk, kind of carry this with you, and uh, as I said, I wish I could kind of say everything at once, um, it feels very relevant to certainly my, my practice, but in, in everyone's practice as it unfolds, that relationship with practice. And, uh, well, that, that's all. In another way, this talk and the talk in two nights' time are... Padding around the talk I'm going to give tomorrow night, which uh, I'll talk more about. So we have a practice, and <clears throat> obviously everyone in here has a practice. We all have practices. And where there's practice, there's relationship with practice. There has to be. And, uh, or relationships with practice. We have relationship with our practice, with our whole sense of practice. So it's important to ask us, and, and for me to ask you, and for you to ask yourself, how am I relating to this whole thing? How am I relating to the whole of my practice? Actually quite, a, I think, a very profound and far-reaching question. There's a lot of implications. How am I relating to the whole thing? How am I relating to this whole retreat? How do I, within that, how do I relate to <coughs> notions of effort, of goals, how do I relate to the notion of the path or a path? How do I relate when I don't understand something that's said? How do I relate to learning new approaches and the possibility of learning new meditative approaches? How do I relate to the concept of doing in practice? And as mentioned, how do I relate to the whole kind of concept of concepts. How do I relate to concepts in general? So within all, and there's many more categories of of course as well, but within all that, uh, one will tend to see for oneself, in oneself, general tendencies, general tendency of ways of relating to specific among those categories. And, of course, being impermanent, uh, one will see changes at times one might have quite a different relationship with one of those categories or the whole of practice or whatever because it's impermanent. So to me this is a really, really important area because it has such a huge impact 
on our practice, basically. It has a huge impact. The relationship with something has a huge impact on that thing. We'll talk much more about this. The relationship with practice has a huge impact on practice and on our life, and on the, in fact on the whole way we're seeing our life. So, am I seeing this endeavor here? Am I seeing the beauty in it? Am I seeing the nobility in it? <coughs> to, to me, again, that those are really, I think, extremely nourishing and important to see and to really feel that one is engaged in, to feel the beauty of what one is engaged in, and, and, and uh, yeah, the nobility of it, to borrow the Buddha's words. Or is it, as can often happen, often, often a person is uh, conscious of it or unconscious, uh, the relationship has moved, we've lost the sense of beauty, our beauty, the beauty of the endeavor, the nobility of it, and it actually has become uh, infiltrated and... and uh, <clears throat> poisoned in a way by impatience and self-criticism and this comes in so easily so one one piece that's really important is am I seeing practice as kindness am I seeing practice as a kindness as a kindness certainly to myself and it was interesting I taught a retreat here in I think it was September I can't remember but and I uh I hadn't planned it, but it just occurred to me in the first sitting. We'll start with some really, ref- really connecting with uh, seeing practice as, as an offering of kindness to yourself and and to others, to the world, to beings. And it was quite remarkable what a difference it made to people's practice. And people would report it really is changing something. And often we just, I know John's been talking to you about this, when we jump into practice and actually lose we lose uh, the sense of what it's about, or it has actually, without our realizing it, become about something else. Actually, to see it as kindness, to have the, the uh, sense of what practice rests in is a space of kindness. It's for that, it's from that. Very, very important. Uh, rather than uh, measuring, which it so often can turn out to be, self-measuring or proving oneself, either to oneself or to others. And those are not, uh, they are not movements of kindness. So, within practice, uh, we have the notion of effort. And I, I, I don't want to talk too much about effort tonight, but it weaves in and out very much of, of some of the stuff I'm talking about. So, We have a notion of effort, and, uh, putting forth effort into the practice. And what does that mean? And to me, it's, it's really crucial that we have a wise relationship with effort in practice. And that uh, that is fundamental to the development of our practice, to, to the uh, <coughs> nurturing a space that our practice can develop in. So the relationship with effort is, is has wisdom in it. And sometimes you hear teachings uh, seem to lean towards let make no effort in practice, get rid of it, because otherwise you're creating a duality. Any effort implies a duality. I'm here and I need to get there. And of course there's some truth in that and there's, there's some wisdom in that. But there's also completely the opposite uh, is true. We could say if I don't make, if, if I have my practice as being an exercise in non-effort, it ends up having very, bearing very little sim- similarity with my life where I have effort every day, countless efforts. Why is, why Here's a question to think about. Why does one kind of effort in my life 
bring a whole sense of problem and tightness and difficulty and stress and etc. And one and many many kinds of effort bring none of that. To me, it's very interesting that people split off practice from and a sense of effort in practice from well, there's a countless efforts that we make in our life. As if, and then one has a pra- might have a practice that bears very little resemblance to that. And the same is true of thinking. And we think a lot during the day, and it's an important part of our humanity. And then to split off practice as an exercise in non-thinking or repelling thought, again, we're, we're going to end up with a duality. And we might be saying to ourselves, thought creates a duality. Does it? Does it? And does thought need to create that duality? I'm just mentioning that. But uh, there was a great uh, Mahayana teacher in India in the, I think, ninth century, uh, called Shantideva. Many of you will know his name. And in his writings, he talks about effort, and he talks about wise effort. And he said it needs four things. Really healthy effort in practice needs four things. The first is a sense of aspiration is interesting. It's like we need to be clear in ourselves what we're heading for. What is it we want out of practice? What is it we most deeply want out of practice and out of life? And am I clear about that? Our effort rests on that clarity and that connection with aspiration. If I'm not connected with my aspiration, it's very difficult to have a, a kind of wise and heartful effort. If I'm not clear about it, again, where is my effort supposed to move and how is it supposed to go? That's the first one. Then he goes on. The second one is confidence. Again, very, very, there's a lot of wisdom here. Confidence. It takes a certain amount of confidence in ourselves and in our efforts and in our practice to actually sustain the expenditure of effort. So confidence is absolutely, is, is a fascinating one. The aspiration that we have set for ourselves has to be somehow realistic. It has to be realistic for me. And if it's not, I won't really believe in it as a real aspiration. So, so whatever my aspiration or aspirations are, they need to be realistic for me. I need to have a sense that it's possible that I can do this. And oftentimes people, that's, that's a piece that's actually missing, the confidence. I was reading a text recently, I can't quite remember where it was, but it drew the distinction between pride on one hand and admiration or appreciation on the other hand. As we were doing uh, last week <coughs> in the, in the late night, at the end of the late night sitting, and so just reflecting on, on appreciating one's, reflecting on what one's put forth and appreciating, appreciating one's heart and one's efforts and how absolutely crucial that is. Pride being puffed up about what one is doing or what one has achieved, etc., tends to limit uh, limit the development of, of good qualities. I've got enough. I'm, I'm already I'm already enough. Admiration or appreciation uh, is minus the sort of contracted self sense and actually feeds and nourishes the development of qualities. So it's not. Uh, egoic, in a sense, to appreciate and admire qualities uh, that are beautiful in oneself and in another. 
So appreciating, admiring one's one's putting forth effort, very different from pride, and very important. Aspiration, confidence. Third one is joy. That's interesting too. And sometimes how easily practice can become joyless. And why does it become joyless? How does it become joyless? This is this is really important. And so what would it be, as I talked in the opening talk, to actually let the practice be infused with some degree of joy, some degree of well-being, that we're taking care of that, that we're really nourishing uh, that quality, to whatever degree. Because, uh, again, uh, sustaining effort over a, uh, over a session, over a retreat, over the years, takes joy. It, we, we need to feel that this is a joyful uh, exercise, that this is a joyful project. And, and that we, we get joy out of, out of the effort. So rather than the usual, the usual association of effort with a kind of grind, gritting one's teeth and sort of pushing through, actually effort and joy go together. I'll come back to this. <clears throat> so conf- aspiration, confidence, joy, and the last one is rest. Rest. So knowing when it's enough, knowing when it's too much, knowing when you need to rest. It's just it's actually very commonsensical. <laughs> so uh, I was encouraging you before to if you have a practice of regu- of sort of just being with experience and being present, etc. Um, and that's your regular practice, actually seeing on this retreat if one can go beyond that. And certainly that's fine at times, but not limiting uh, what, what we're doing here. And bringing in the sense of playfulness and experimentation, also sources of joy and confidence. Playfulness and experimentation, to find new ways of working. And then, and then as from, from now on, as what, what's going to happen more and more is that these practices we've introduced, we're going to stay with them, and we're consolidating them consolidating uh, being a, our capacity, our skills at doing them, and then they lead to other levels. They, they open up other insights, which we then take further, they unfold. So, engaging in that process, we said, as Shantideva said, we need confidence. And where does that come from? Say a little bit more about it. Confidence comes from, again, kind of things making sense to one. So, just so far, we've done mostly three characteristics. It needs to make sense why, why I would practice the three characteristics, why you would practice. That one can actually feel the sense of it, feel uh, the, the, the palpable uh, making sense of it. Uh, if not, it's hard to gain confidence, certainly hard to sustain a sort of commitment to it. So that's important, that it, that it makes sense. Um, the second thing, where do we get confidence, or the second possible place we get confidence from, is actually a sense of progress. Sense of progress. Actually sensing that the, pra- the practice is taking us somewhere, is deepening. Uh, that there is a development uh, of more subtlety. That there's a sense of things becoming more subtle to consciousness, and one's noticing subtleties that one hadn't noticed before. All that's part of developing. <coughs> and progress. So if we just touch base with what we've done so far with the three characteristics, when we contemplate in the three character- with the three characteristics, we should be seeing 
and I hope everyone's getting some glimpse of this, we should be seeing that putting on those lenses, to that language we were using, putting on those lenses, contemplating three characteristics, takes some of the suffering out of experience. Yeah, and I think everyone's ho- hopefully tasted that, just, even just a little bit. Yeah. I know you have. <laughs> Sometimes at least, right? Tell me if no. Yes? Uh, and, and the second thing we mentioned, that contemplating th- any one of the three characteristics should decrease the suffering in that moment and should also uh, decrease the self-sense. And we talked about that. So whether it's impermanence, or whether it's relaxing the aversion, whatever it is, that the actual self-sense gets more quiet. Yeah? And, and so, so seeing that both those things... Um, when the suffering is less, and when the self-sense is less, it then, re- it then feeds back, the process feeds back on itself, becomes kind of a, uh, a good snowball, in that in that space of less suffering, less self-sense, it's actually clearer to see the three characteristics of things. Do you see? So it, 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 it uh, feeds itself. Later, as, as we go on, maybe starting this week even, I'm going to talk about how uh, that also begins opening up other possibilities. Seeing the three characteristics, seeing the suffering go down a little bit, seeing the self-sense go down, actually unfolds other possibilities um, to do with the nature of awareness, to do with love, and to do with uh, the nature of perception and the fading of perception. We'll get to this, but... Uh, that, that the reason why I want everyone to feel that, yes, this, this, I can really see that. Suffering gets less, self-sense gets less, because we're going to build on that. And so it's like really getting the roots uh, there. So, and the other thing we talked about, and this is just review again, but the other thing we talked about is if, for instance, you're doing the anatta practice, the not me, not mine, not self, however you're conceiving of it, saying it, <coughs> or not saying it, that we're having a sense of the range of that expanding. And it could be very, very slow. In other words, you might start with the body and then realize, oh, actually, I can build on that and introduce thoughts, etc. There's a sense of expanding that range. This is a side point, but I'm going to bring it up again because it came up in quite quite a few interviews. Remember, when we're doing this particular anatta practice, uh, what we're doing is, in relationship to this thing, which I am looking at as not-self. In relationship to that thing, we're finding a different relationship with it in that moment, uh, which allows more freedom. Okay, that's what we're doing in the anatta practice, which is a different thing than what we'll, I'll introduce tomorrow, which is uh, actually tackling the whole sense of self. Um, so it's okay, as some people were pointing out in interviews, it's okay that if I'm looking at my body sensations and I have a sense of well, okay, but myself just kind of goes back here somewhere. That's okay for right now. We can tackle that later. We develop our capacity to tackle what's left of this self hiding somewhere. But what we're interested in is feeling the freedom, or the relative freedom, in relationship to that thing that we're looking at. Okay? Make sense? Um, if you're doing the uh, letting go practice, letting be practice, or relaxing the aversion, again, as we let go, it's possible, and I mentioned this in one of the talks, that because we let go, we're not 
clinging and craving, of pushing, pulling, that pushing, pulling is what agitates consciousness. It agitates the, the mind. And uh, because we're letting go, there's less agitation. Again, things get calmer and more subtle. Sometimes, sometimes they get more subtle. And in that subtlety, we can then uh, see things which are more subtle, see pushings and pullings which are more subtle, and let go at that strata which before would have been inaccessible. So we talked about, you know, there's craving at the level of thinking, very important to deal with that. But there's, you know, quite a lot of craving, way quieter than, than thinking, and it's important to be able to access that gradually, that level of subtlety, and even more and more and more. Strangely, I find it easier to think, to understand or believe when I say this is not a particular body part than I do to say this is not my experience of hearing a bird. And I don't know whether mm -hmm. there's a, a, diff, a way that I can get my head around that because it just, my, my brain just says you are hearing the bird. But yeah. It doesn't about the body. No, <laughs> so okay. I, I so don't know why it's so yeah, hard. So it's important. Um, so we talked about this, but it's is really important to repeat. So when, when I say, this is me hearing the bird, or me experiencing the bird, at that point, the identification is with consciousness or awareness. It's not going to be with the sound. The sound, we don't generally yeah. take sounds as being something we identify with. Letting go of the identification with awareness uh, is, is more subtle than letting go of the identification with body or body sensations. I've, I've never met anyone who jumps straight to letting go of identification with awareness. So there's, there's many ways to go about this, and I hope by the end of the retreat you get the sense of, wow, you could go about it this way, this way, this way. They'll all end up reinforcing each other. If you just take that practice of anatta, what you'll find is, as I said, if you just don't worry about that part, uh, identifying with awareness just yet, and just keep feeling the freedom of the letting go of identification with body sensations, and then maybe on that, I don't know what the next step will be for you, maybe thoughts or emotions or something, and you're expanding the range, Eventually, it will be a much smaller jump to letting go of identification with awareness, which is still there as a kind of like, often people say to me, how on earth would you let go of identification with awareness? We can, it's quite subtle and not necessarily easy, but we pretty much everyone I've ever met or worked with has to, has to build up to it and kind of consolidate the easier uh, Okay. Regions first. So, should I just be enjoying listening to the yeah. birds and not trying to sort of force yes. myself? At the moment, the yes. Yeah. And enjoy listening to the birds, but more important, enjoying. So, okay, you're sitting in meditation, let go of, and in letting go, if you're working with Anatta, letting go of the identification with body sensations. Then a bird goes, okay. There's two enjoyments there the beautiful bird sound and the freedom in relationship to the body sensations. So, always lovely to enjoy the bird's song, mm -hmm. but don't lose this one, because that, that will consolidate that platform on which eventually you can even let go of the awareness. Yeah? So, we talk about d developing, progressing, learning, you know, developing our art or our skill, and, it's like, and the question is, what's the relationship to all that? What's the relationship to the whole notion of progress, the whole notion of developing? So, um, I remember... It's almost one of my early memories. We, my family used to drive to Italy where my, my father's brother lived every year. Uh, and um, and uh, until I was about nine or something. <coughs> and um, one year we stopped. Uh, I think we were already in Italy. And, um, and we stopped and there was this... Uh, 
it was like a, a go-kart track for kids, but it had traffic lights and uh, zebra crossings and, and the cars, these little cars, the kids that had gears and uh, brakes and, and, and all this stuff. And, um, and of course, my parents thought, oh, well, me and my brother uh, would love this. And uh, my brother, who's younger than me, so I was probably about six, I think, my brother's younger than me, just didn't even wait for any instructions, jumped in the car, <laughs> and zoomed off, and uh, was fine with it. I was completely, I was just uh, totally overwhelmed with the sort of uh, complexity of it all, and um, I had to be kind of uh, coached by my dad to get back in the car, and, and, and finally had, had fun with it. <clears throat> and actually, even later, when I was a teenager, and uh, in this country you're... Uh, is it 16 you can start driving? Seventeen. Um, 17th birthday, all my friends, driving lesson on the 17th birthday. Uh, for me, I, I, maybe I was still traumatized from this, <laughs> but I, I didn't have my first driving until I was at least 18 or 19 or something. Um, and, and even then, it was quite, it just seemed like so much to take in, with gears and this and that. And, and, um, and of course now, as some people know how I drive now, somewhat cavalier, you know, just don't think about it. Um, so a lot of this can feel perhaps overwhelming or complex, and it's just learning skills. It's not, uh, you know, we can do this as human beings, we really can do this, even if something feels... Uh, as I think it was April saying last week, it's like, oh, there's this and there's this, and I'm, you know, and, it, and then after a while, it's like, it really just doesn't become a big deal. It's just not a big deal. So it takes time. It takes time, generally speaking, to develop these practices. I feel they're really skills or arts. Um, and they broaden and deepen what's possible for us. And I, I, it's sometimes possible that a person just does the same old thing, same old thing in their practice, and practice keeps unfolding. My sense is if we just keep doing the same thing, sooner or later we're going to hit a brick wall where that particular practice is actually not possible to go beyond. So really just really wanting to encourage this sense of it is possible, we really can do this. And uh, we can find what works for us as practitioners. So it might be, well, I'm not really gelling with any of this yet. Uh, something will come. And as I said in the opening talk, um, n no one's going to be able to do... So a lot of what I'm saying tonight, as I said, is, is to keep with you over the retreat. No one's going to be able to do all of what's being offered in terms of practice. It's impossible. Uh, almost impossible. Um, but to take one or three things and dig those holes deep. So this word progress, you know, it's in, in a lot of spiritual circles nowadays. It's kind of a taboo word. There's a lot of... Um, almost that like electric charge to it. Uh, but it's, to me it's an important, it's important, uh, again, our relationship with that notion. Um, and how does it come? How do, how do we have a sense of moving more towards freedom, of having more freedom in our life, more understanding, more fullness and breadth of that? And will it come without a certain sense of direction? These are questions. Will it come without a certain sense of intentness, without um, you know practicing specific and sustained approaches and specific and sustained kind of pen penetrations of inquiry? So it may, but I wonder if it will be limited. But these are questions. So sometimes we're tempted to just let go of progress as a concept and let go of that uh, whole sense of things. <clears throat> to me. 
just an opinion, but I feel that is it possible to hold that word, if we're using that word, to hold it but without suffering over it? Can I hold a notion of developing, progress, deepening, etc., but not actually suffering much with it? Sometimes, as teachers, you know, we say in insight meditation, at the beginning of the retreat, if we're teaching teaching a week long or something, sometimes we'll say, don't expect anything from practice. Come with no expectations. That's the best way to begin. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. But like everything, it goes both ways. And it has its pitfalls. Is it good never to expect anything from practice? Is that good? Is that appropriate? Is that wise? Is that healthy? And sometimes, you know, one of the dangers is that actually what can happen is practitioners expect too little. We expect too little from the practice. We don't really have a sense of, of, of the, the depth and the fullness with, uh, that, that our, our whole sense of life can be transformed and turned upside down. So oftentimes I, I find myself talking to or talking with uh, practitioners who, who have a kind of very, very truncated sense of of what's possible in practice, or what they might even expect for themselves, and and to me that's a little bit sad, actually. We're also taught, though, not to have expectations. That's what I'm saying. Yes, yes. I mean, which, not to think of it, not to think of mm-hmm. doing this because mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. I will. Yeah, something. yeah. That's what I'm saying. And I think that teaching, which you know, I have said to people too, has its strengths and its pitfalls. So it just mm-hmm. kind of raising the fact of both. You know, de- but definitely. You know. So I'm just saying uh, maybe there's more to consider there. You know, it's not quite so simple. Listen to the Dalai Lama. Uh, Towards material things which necessarily have a limit, it is best to be satisfied with what you have. But with regard to the limitless development of spiritual qualities, you should never be satisfied with a mere portion, but continually seek higher development. That's the Dalai Lama. What's going to make that work? What's going to make that not backfire on me? We, We could talk all night about this, I don't have time, but one thing is going back to what I said earlier, love and kindness, and seeing it as a kindness to oneself, rather than as an exercise in self-measurement, which you can often slip into. And the second thing is, how much is the self and the self-identity wrapped up with a sense of progress? That's the real danger. Progress in itself is, you know, it's good, deepening is good, but what happens is we then measure ourselves and our self-worth and our self-evaluation on how we feel we're doing in practice. And then the whole ship just sinks. So when we say that, Diana, that's what we're cautious about, really. Uh, And because for a lot of people the self is very tied up with measuring oneself and proving oneself, etc., it usually goes into that. But if I can find a way of working with those two things, the the love and the kindness, and and, uh, draining the self-sense from the sense of progress, then it's actually open vistas. So what happens when you're in a talk, or you're listening to a CD, or whatever it is, and the teacher starts talking, or you're reading, and the teacher starts talking about uh, experiences, or understandings, or developments of practice that are beyond where, where you are right now, that are beyond uh, where we find ourselves to be. 
Where does that go? Where does it land in you? To me, again, a very important question, and I experience this all the time uh, in talks, etc. But uh, where does it land? Does it land in the inner critic? Does it land uh, that we immediately dismiss where we are? Where I am is rubbish or irrelevant. That's where I want to go. Do we get impatient? Do we tend to have a sense of futility and despair and give up? Do we feel overwhelmed? So it can land in all these places. And remember, I'm bringing this up because it's going to apply to this retreat for sure. Or does that those same words and that same picture that's being presented actually land in a place of inspiring us, of giving us a sense of direction, maybe giving us a helpful one possible map? Ah. Uh, somehow open up joy and trigger joy. Arouse our curiosity. You know, can, can land in all these places, all these places. So again, it's going back to something I said at the beginning of this talk. We will notice tendencies. So one person may tend, it always tends to land in the inner critic. Another person tends to land, land somewhere else, but it will change. So right in the moment that you're hearing something, where is it landing? Where is it landing? So to me, it's really... I. Uh, and again, it's just my opinion, but I, I feel that our spiritual hunger is, is so precious, so precious, that to keep that alive and to sustain that, our, our hunger to know more, to understand more, to, to deepen in freedom, to open in love more, that, that's uh, really crucial that we're nourishing that and that there's a kind of evenness and steadiness to to that quality our thirst that we're patient uh, particularly at the times when it feels that practice is difficult or that there's not much progress or it actually feels like we've plateaued or stagnated depending on which word one chooses When uh, when things are difficult, I think I mentioned this already at one point. It's like, am I seeing the difficulties, the very di- the places where I suffer? Um, am I seeing them as opportunities? It's so easy, even though we're in the middle of a retreat, that the difficulty and the suffering is actually just seen as a hassle, and not as an opportunity. This normal part of uh, kind of deluded mind, really. Um, so I say that and. Uh, I, the, the, the crucial thing is translating it because everyone said, yeah, obviously that's important and the crucial thing is translating it there's a Mahayana Sutta the Kashyapa chapter sutra just as the filth of city dwellers and I was the shit basically of city dwellers just as the filth of city dwellers helps the field of a sugarcane grower so the manure of a bodhisattva's afflictions assists in growing the qualities of a Buddha what did you mean by translating it? I mean, actually, when we have a difficulty and when, when we're suffering with something, something isn't going the way we want it, when there's suffering, actually seeing it as an opportunity and taking it and working with it in a very practical way, internally, etc., um, to uh, translate it from just a hassle, just a difficulty, into an opportunity for, for growth, for freedom. But actually doing that. 
actually making that shift inside. I mean, sometimes it's a lot easier than others. Some situations get very complicated, but... I hear the words. Um, I, I <laughs> differing experiences of actually being, being able to do that. Well, that's, so that's absolutely. So it's sometimes, uh, sometimes it will be uh, relatively straightforward. Sometimes it will be extremely difficult. Sometimes we're not even sure how to proceed. Sometimes the situation is more external and needs mm. an external. Uh, it, you know, something needs to be said externally. Something needs to be communicated. It's not just as practitioners we have a tendency to think all the le- all, all the resolution of a difficulty will be here in letting go, and sometimes it's something external between again on the language of self, the self to that self that needs to get communicated. Hmm. As my my life struggling with some of my afflictions, and sometimes it's just taken me years to. Um, sometimes it's felt like. I've had to dive into them, and um, perhaps I've been frightened, and uh, well, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, but, yeah. Well, I mean, I, it, it, yeah, I mean, but I, I'm really being honest. It has taken me years, uh, decades, Absolutely. actually, if I'm honest, yeah. uh, to um, become familiar with them, get to know them, mm-hmm. and often they look very different. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So all that's so, part of what I would call the translation process, yeah. getting to know it, realizing what's going on, allowing oneself to feel it, become intimate with it. And, at ta- and then at a certain point, there's, there's, uh, all that's part of the opportunity. And then what, what can be let go of here, what do I need to see differently, etc., to move beyond it. So there's no... A- again, we can hear something like that and feel very... Uh, again, it, it, it can land in a place of self-judgment, kind of... Uh, measurement, etc. Some of these things take years, as you were saying. You know, totally. Well, uh, okay, well, I'm good. I like hearing that. <laughs> okay. It's just that, uh, well, <coughs> anyway, yes. <clears throat> so, going back to what Shantideva said, uh, effort, e- uh, I- I- to nourish effort takes aspiration, confidence, joy, and rest. Like everything, when you see when you see causality go one way, or dependency go one way, it tends to go the other way too. So uh, this is a very important principle for a Dharma practitioner that we'll be revisiting a lot. So if aspiration, confidence, joy, and rest bring lead to effort. Um, I wonder whether effort, aspiration, confidence, and rest actually bring joy. In other words, it seems to me that um, as human beings, we actually need, uh, a part of us needs to feel like it has a meaningful challenge, like it has a sense of direction, something we're giving our energy to wholeheartedly that feels meaningful. And that actually, there's, there's a joy for us there, you know. The thing about aspiration, I, I want to revisit. Uh, it seems to me that our aspirations in life, and by aspirations, I mean what we what we most deeply long for, the the uh, the heart sort of longing to move in a certain direction or open in a certain direction or grow, that deepest longing of the heart, that our deep aspirations, in a way, are our one of our most pr- 
precious potential treasures. They're, they're, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's difficult to actually see them that way. There's something very, very precious about uh, acknowledging and honouring and respecting and treasuring what it is that the heart longs for most deeply. So it's easy as human beings, too easy to slip from our aspirations. That we might have, we might feel a passionate longing at times. And a little time goes by, not even, not even very long, and we slip from that. Our life slips from that. And, and it can be very insidious, the way that it just moves from something that we've set our heart on, set our sights on, set our directionality on, and somehow something's happened. And we lose sight of it. We forget it. We relegate it to less importance. All all that. So it needs a lot of awareness and integrity to actually keep the aspirations alive. It needs a tremendous amount of awareness and integrity uh, to keep them present in the heart, to keep our deep longing and our deep aspiration in the driving seat. It's very easy for that to slip out of the driving seat and other forces which we actually don't really care about much or as much. Things like our fears, our longing for security, our convenience, our comforts, very easily they get in the driving seat without us even noticing it. So it takes a lot of awareness, a lot of integrity to keep love uh, on track, to keep our deepest love on track and, and to keep our hearts aligned with what we really want them to be aligned for in this life. And, uh, you know, one of the pr- privileges of, of being, you know, teaching Dharma is, is I, I speak to so many people and I speak to them about this stuff and what I see, and I've seen it myself in the past as well, of course, is, is how easy aspirations slip. I see loads of people, talk with loads of people, their aspir- aspirations have slipped or, and often they haven't even realized that they've slipped person has just drifted off into some other direction in life or made certain choices and it's like, hold on, I thought two months ago you said this. What happened? And they didn't even realize that that drift was happening and, and now they're on a different track. And again, we can hear this judgmentally, but we're talking about what do, you, what do we really want in life? And am I honoring myself? I mean, this is all in the service of kindness. Is it kind to let my longing drift and drift away and drift out of consciousness. To me, that's not respecting myself at the deepest level of my being. It's also important, though, to know when our aspirations change. Absolutely, but that's conscious, uh, definitely. So, and, and, and I was talking with someone on the phone the other day and said, you know, and he, it's, this seemed to be going on, I said, that's fine, as long as it's conscious, as long as it's conscious, and just really wanted to make it conscious, because often it's, it's not. You know, it just comes in insidiously and we don't realize. So, all this uh, aspiration, hugely, I think, aspiration and the sense that we really are giving energy to our aspirations in our life. Uh, there's a generosity there that we're moving in that direction that we most deeply care about. That's a fundamental ingredient, I feel, for human happiness. And then we actually like, and I don't even, even notice on this retreat, we like to feel stretched at times. I like to challenge myself in the direction of love. I like to feel uh, uh, when, when it's not about self and self-measurement. We love that. We love that. Or well, there's a part in us that loves it. 
Again, uh, in relationship to all this, and just kind of other other areas where we where I really feel it's important to be aware of and investigate and question our relationship is is um, kind of when we feel like we get it or we don't get it when we hear something or read something or the teacher says something, and how easily then we can have a black and white sense of of progress. Um, and to me, the sense of deepening in practice is almost like. There's always more. There's al- there's always a deeper sense, and it's le- it's not it's, it's not so much about black and white and putting ourselves in a box. Oh, I'm I'm not getting it, or I've got it. And even after very deep realization, uh, there's still, as I said at one point, I can't remember. There's still the refining of view that's very very important. Um, we'll talk much more about this later in the retreat. But basically, with emptiness, at first we tend to either go not realize its full significance, its full depth, or we go overboard and it becomes a version of nihilism. You've got these two extremes. And emptiness is said to be the middle way. And sometimes w- progress, the ongoing progress actually becomes ref- really refining the view, not going into nihilism, not going into reification. So remember, I read you a quote one time from Arya Davis. says, uh, those with little merit do not even entertain questions regarding this dharma, these teachings of emptiness. Um, but even by seeing the slightest bit, one is better off. Even entertaining a question about it tears samsara to shreds. We're planting seeds here. A lot of what we're doing is planting seeds, uh, m- most definitely. And, and that's really okay. Some of the fruit we will see here. You will see, and you already have seen, fruit in your practice. Some sense, as I said before, is this happening? Is that happening? Is it a little less suffering? It's fruit here and now. And we repeat that and we consolidate it. And some fruit comes up later, and that's really okay. And some fruit might be, who knows when. But in terms of, what should we say, um, planting those seeds... Um, they're kind of sometimes it's seeds of understanding, or we plant them through understanding, grappling with concepts. That's one way. The second way is in the meditation, and really working in the meditation and finding things work. And the third way is what we're talking about in life. And this is as I'm moving around. This is in my relationship. This is in my work period. This is whatever it is. And all all those three are important: understanding, meditation, and life situations. And uh, to get the fullness.
So we might hear in a talk, as I said, teacher or someone, or we read something, and it's not describing where we are. It's describing beyond where we are, and then what happens. But a similar and related question is, what's the reaction, what's the attitude when we hear something we don't understand? Um, very often, very, and this may not be so much the case in this group, or, or but for some of you not the case, but very often, I run into this a lot, I'm stupid. Per person uh, goes again into the inner critic and questioning their intelligence. And... Uh, the measuring mind, the comparing mind, the self-judging mind. And sometimes, in fact quite often in our culture, a person has been a little bit traumatized by uh, the school experience around you know, intelligence and uh, their intellect, etc. And there can be an enormous amount of pain around that. And so we will be talking about some conceptual things and it might feel, I don't understand that, I must be stupid. And it goes right back to third grade when Miss Mackey used to slap me on the back of the knees with a ruler for <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm joking, but actually it can be, can be really quite a deep pain or some family dynamic that's actually quite tied in with the judgment of intelligence. And it can go right to that place of pain and contraction. Um, often for a lot of people, that, that's the case. Um, I found this. I'm not sure where it's from. It's, I'll speak more about it tomorrow night. It's seven, seven ways, uh, seven conditions for starving wisdom or feeding confusion. The fifth, is, the, the seventh actually, is being influenced by thoughts such as, someone like me could never understand this. Someone like me, little old me, could never understand this. And that's actually, and the key word is influenced, so it may come up as a thought, but buying into that, based on past experience and the pain that we have around intelligence or measures of intelligence or intellectuality, etc. The fifth one is kind of the opposite, thinking you already know things and thus do not have to study or analyze. It's the opposite. On an opening talk, asked to, to, among other things, for two things, openness and humility. But this is very interesting. So one, one reaction is, I'm stupid. That's one place that it can land. And it's really important to be aware of this, because we will encounter it, uh, if not on this retreat, in other, other situations when the teachings start to go quite deep and difficult. Can also land, it's a teacher saying something, or you're reading something, I don't, don't understand, it doesn't matter, it's okay, it doesn't matter. And we stop engaging. We stop engaging with what's being said or what's being communicated. We stop grappling and we stop questioning. And uh, we lose interest. And again, that's, that's very common for other personalities or the same person at a different time. Uh, to me, as, as the retreat goes on, it's like there's a lot to grapple with here. There's just Even on just an intellectual level, there's a lot to grapple with. Or, third possibility, and again, just to check, what's your, what's your favorite flavor here? What do you notice yourself doing? And as, as the retreat goes on, this retreat, or other retreats that you do, um, noticing what it is in the moment. Third possibility, if it's difficult to understand, it's so intellectual, this can't be right. Uh, the truth has to be simple. The truth is simple. Doesn't everyone say that? The truth is simple. And the truth is non-conceptual and therefore dismissing. Now just to be aware of this. Or, uh, maybe John, maybe me, maybe another teacher, he, she, is so intellectual and dismissing. 
that's missing there. Or, and really, really crucial, something happens when we don't understand something and the heart closes. The heart just shrinks. And why is that? Why does it need to do that? And does it need to do that? Or, again, we could feel inspired. There's something I don't understand. And, and actually feel inspired by it and, and seek to understand. Or, and on this retreat particularly, and I want to say this, and I think I might have said it already, but it's very important, filing something for later. Again, there's too much just in terms of, uh, you know, uh, ideas, you know. And it's, it's okay to just say, you know, I get it, I don't get it, and I'm going to file it for later, and I'll investigate it later. Or even, I do get it, and I'm still going to file it for later. And that later could be hours later, grappling with it, questioning it. It could be days later, it could be years later. And that's really, really fine. It's uh, actually skillful and appropriate. So some stuff that's been, certainly on this retreat, that's been communicated, but I'm sure many of you have encountered it in the, in the Dharma in the past. Some stuff is just difficult. It's just difficult stuff. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to penetrate what's being said, either because it's said in a very cryptic, sort of mystical way, or it's said the opposite, in a very, very clear, kind of rational way. But either way, it's difficult to understand. And, it, again, it's rare that we would get it all at once. I mean, I'm not going to get all this at once. I'm probably not. And we can feel uncomfortable with that. We probably will feel uncomfortable with that. There's a, a quote I absolutely love by Sakya Pandita, who was a very great Tibetan teacher from, I think, the 13th or 14th centuries. He says, Wise people suffer while they learn. If you want to be comfortable forget about becoming wise. Then he says, people who are attached to small pleasures don't get big ones. <laughs> a lot of, I think a lot of wisdom in that. And again, if we talk about how we're listening to Dharma talks, um, sometimes, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, and, and people, I know this because people regularly uh, tell me, um, we hear a Dharma talk, and it says what we already know. And we like that. <laughs> For some reason, we like that. Why would we want that? Why, what's going on there? Why would we want that? Um, I mean, maybe we want to feel. I know. And so often, person, someone will say to me about a talk I gave, or about a talk someone else gave that I'm teaching a retreat on, that was a great talk. And what one finds is when and they explain why they thought it was great was, was because it actually it agreed with the views that they already had. <laughs> <laughs> and it's important to see this and say, what, what is going on there? Would we want... Do we want to be really challenged? And sometimes, again, it goes right back to the inner critic and uh, that sometimes there's inner critic so strong we actually want a relief from the sense of inner critic by having a feeling like, I knew that. I understood that already, or whatever it is, but it's, it's actually, uh, you know, the feeling of not getting it, of not knowing, is actually quite strong. We want a relief from it. If we feel uncomfortable on this retreat, and there's many ways I know that you can feel uncomfortable and that you perhaps already are, um, but in relationship to the teachings, if I feel uncomfortable, it may be that's because I'm being stretched and challenged, and there's a possibility of learning and growing there. It may well be that. And maybe that's important. I, I actually feel it's an important part of... I, I feel uncomfortable 
a lot uh, with what I study and and uh, and, and pra- practice and, and feel it's healthy. If we, if we continue with this, um, what is the attitude to the sense of there being a kind of depth of understanding, a spectrum to the depth? And again, we can feel overwhelmed, we could feel impatient, we could feel self-critical or confused. <clears throat> we could um, also kind of stop wherever we are in our understanding and just kind of, that's, that's it, just not look any further and not keep questioning. <clears throat> so the fourth practice I'll introduce this week, sorry, the fourth talk, the, the second practice I'll introduce this week, uh, is one of the most popular places to stop. And uh, very, very common for people to just kind of say, this is it now, I've got it, I just need to learn this, just need to hang out in this. Um, or restricting the teachings on emptiness to kind of being the same as impermanence or just about the personal selflessness. So there's plenty, plenty of places we can stop. And plenty in that stopping actually find a lot of support in texts and scriptures, etc., that would seem to support us stopping there. And so there's something about keeping the integrity and keeping the passion and keeping the questioning alive. And one of my teachers said, he said to me, you know, get attached. It's actually fine, it's really fine to station in these places of uh, relative freedom and understanding and stay there even for a while, but they're provisional. And so you can be staying there and enjoying that, but really just knowing that there's further to go. And that partly is why there's so much on this course. Uh, if you don't feel that already, you certainly will by the end of it, that there's, there's a lot offered on this course. And it's partly because I want to get a sense of, if you're in this place, great, and, and there's more, and, and just to know that there's more. In the Dzogchen tradition, they have a, a phrase, I really uh, love it, it's extremely wise, it says, trust your experience, trust your experience, your meditative experience, but keep refining your view. Trust your experience, but keep refining your view. To not trust my experience would be to get in the inner critic and self-doubt. But keep refining the view. Whatever level we might reach in understanding emptiness, pretty much rest assured there's more to understand. There's, there's deeper to go. There's a more fullness. There's more radicality there. Trust your experience, but keep refining your view. So in that, you know, as and again, this is a kind of preview preview talk. So some of the teachings, they may sound at times very picky, and very sort of pedantic or very complex or this and that. But I I feel that if we're practicing and inquiring with real integrity and real care, the subtleties actually become really really important. They really become important, and stuff that you know, like stuff that I'm feel like I'm wrestling with in my understanding right now, in my practice and my study, I wouldn't have gone near it, you know, X years ago. It just wouldn't. It would have seemed the most completely picky, and now it seems almost like life and death. Uh, I feel that that uh, if there's integrity, a person will yearn for clarity rather than rejecting rejecting precision or or, uh, or complexity even. So all this, all this, all this, and to see how, how do I, how, how's my general response to this, my general tendency of how I respond to all this stuff. And, as I said, that's going to shift. And we notice in practice, and you notice over a day of practice, you've 
probably even noticed in the course of this talk, how, how the attitude shifts moment to moment, because like everything else, it's impermanent. So to me, part of the art of practice is actually keeping one eye, so to speak, on my relationship with practice. It's actually all the time being kind of lightly interested in my relationship with practice. Where there's a practice, there's a relationship with practice. In any moment of practice, there's that moment of relation, relating to practice. It's important to see what is it right now, because it slips into things that may not be that helpful, and we can encourage it in a different direction. So I was saying on the opening talk, am I, now this is a, a review question, am I nourishing joy? Am I nourishing warmth? Am I nourishing a sense of juiciness, of gratitude, of appreciation? Are those things there? Are we taking care of them? Uh, beauty, devotion, kindness to oneself, love of the Dharma, sense of possibility. All these things need, need caring for. They're part of what makes up our sense of the relationship to practice. One of the reasons we did the, I had the idea of the candle was... Um, if practice is just about me and just for me, it's very easy that the inner critic comes in there. When I uh, nourish uh, uh, and nurture a relationship with practice that's actually far beyond just me and what I get out of it, it tends to diffuse uh, the degree to which the inner critic can get involved. It's actually gone beyond the self and the self-notion. So all that stuff, joy, warmth, juice, gratitude, appreciation, can also be nourished by our, our, our silence and our sense of silence and our sense of presence and simplicity and curiosity and by the sense of possibility. So again, everything snowballs together. We need, well, we can also see that our interest, our interest in all this goes up and down. Sometimes you feel really compelled, other times you just feel, well, a bit bored, basically, either in the practice or in the teachings. Uh, and to notice that, interest is a conditioned phenomenon, like all others, and it gets more and it gets less. thing is, can I respond to that? Am I being responsive? It's very, and this goes back to something I said much earlier in terms of Shantideva and such, it's very difficult to keep responding in these ways and keep nourishing and nourishing the effort if I'm not convinced that delusion brings suffering. If I'm not actually convinced that there's a relationship between, a very, very strong relationship between delusion and suffering, I won't be so interested. So, Interest comes and goes and rises and falls, and all, all the other stuff comes and goes and rises to fall. How to keep it fresh and alive? How do I keep it fresh and alive on a retreat uh, and in my daily life? One possibility is, an important thing, is taking risks. Taking risks. So, am I taking risks, and what possible risks can I take in my practice? It might be something just so simple as sitting longer. Feeling like one confines oneself to this amount of time, whether it's 45 minutes, actually, why not just go for it and sit longer? And there's a risk there. Well, we don't know what will happen, if it will be okay. Getting up late, getting up early, all of this, just keeping, uh, shaking up the habits and playing one's edges. So you've been here, is it a week? Mm -hmm. A little over a week. 
and how easily one can get into retreat habits. I mean, it's just, and, and keeping that shaken up is really, really important. Because we, we, sometimes we are creatures of habit, and we just find our, our groove of comfort. And keeping, keeping an edge to things, finding a way to shake it up and keep an edge, and play one's edges. So in our life, you know, there's a thousand things every day outside retreat as well. A thousand things, habits, and th- that actually can increase our sense of open openness and energy or decrease them. So I'm talking about things like our relationship with food, with uh, TV, with um, the way we speak, with uh, awareness of our aspirations and intentions. All of this feeds in to this melting pot inside and either raises and opens or does the opposite. You may, uh, I haven't had interviews this week yet, except three today, uh, four, three or four today, but um, I don't know how it's going for a lot of people, So, even so far, so with these practices. As I said, and I asked, so suffering sometimes goes out, self-sense, there's some sense of, oh, this is, this is something to be pursued. Sometimes, and I don't know whether anyone's found this yet, sometimes we do these practices and fear comes up. Has anyone found that? Has that been the case? Yeah. yeah, fear comes up. Very important uh, fact. It comes up either through the samadhi sometimes or through the insight practices. And partly we are what's happening either through the samadhi or through the insight is that we're a little bit eroding our usual bearings, our usual sense of self and definition, and usually what the kind of texture of experience that we usually relate to. And for a lot of people, at some point, some fear comes in relationship to the unfamiliarity and in relationship to the quieting of the self. So sometimes the fear that comes up is so strong that one needs to address the fear. More often than not, it's actually there, but it's kind of just one part of what's going on. And as I was saying in one of the talks, we usually get sucked into it because it's a difficult thing. So sometimes it's not so strong, and it's almost like just standing back a little bit and getting, becoming aware I've got fear, and I've also got maybe something quite nice going on, a sense of freedom, a sense of spaciousness, a sense of peace in some degree, or relief or release. And actually seeing, not pushing away the fear, not denying it, not squashing it, acknowledging it, but just leaning the mind over into the sense of well-being, and what might actually be a physical sense of well-being, of uh, of that space of letting go. And what that does is it can reassure uh, the cells, the being, that actually that yeah, that's a good place to go, and it, it kind of calms the fear. Make sense? Mm-hmm. As, as a practice. Did it make sense? Yeah. Um, when we let go, of to a significant degree, when we let go, there's usually that combination. There's loveliness and there's fear. We need to notice the loveliness because that will, is what will help soften the fear long term. Sometimes I say to people, you know, it's like you've run a bath and you're not sure if it's too hot, so you put your toe in and you get used to that. That's okay. So you put your foot in and maybe that's okay. And then you put your calf in. Okay. And then your leg. That's okay. And then finally, you can completely abandon yourself to the bath. 
So these spaces that come from letting go through the three characteristics or through samadhi, similar, they take getting familiar with. And finally, we have no reservations at all. We're completely abandoning ourselves and letting go of the self in that way. Another response is sadness. And that, that, that's also quite an interesting one. So generally, as I said, generally the movement of emptiness, seeing the emptiness of things, is into freedom, release, joy, peace, etc. Relief. Uh, sometimes it brings up sadness. And sometimes it's sadness even when we know that what we're letting go of is not, ha- is not helping us. We're, we just It's somehow been part of us. And sometimes there's a sense of letting go of a part of ourselves, which we aren't really doing. But sometimes sadness can come up. And again, do I need to be with that sadness? Do I just need to find my way through it? Another possibility outside of the sort of more expected freedom and relief and all that is that a coldness or a distance comes into practice. Has anyone noticed this? Yeah? Okay. So this also is, is can happen at times. Um... A couple of options there. You can go back to a samadhi practice or a metta practice, something that brings a bit more heart quality. I'm finding today that normally my samadhi and my metta is just like no problem. Mm -hmm. Partly I think it's because I've been trying to make a conscious choice not to do that. Um, But, yeah, later today I made a conscious choice to do it because I felt that I was getting this... To do the samadhi or metta? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. and it just, I felt a complete block. Okay. I just, uh, aver- uh, you know, yeah. really clear aversion. Yes. And, and it was really, it was blatantly obvious to me, but it still yeah. irritated me. And it's not really fear, it's just, um, I think it's bringing up frustration. Okay. The, 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 that they feel blocked, you mean? or the, Yeah. It, yeah. Um, that I can't get that sense of peace that okay, okay. should be readily yeah. available. So, peace that comes one way is available another way, usually. Uh, it's, it's Always with practice, we have more than one option. So this door feels closed, okay, let's go this door. You know? um, and sometimes we just have to put up with that and be okay and work with the frustration. But a uh, second possibility is actually doing um, a sense, uh, doing the practice of anatta, for instance, on the sense of uh, coldness. So anatta is one that might bring that sense of coldness at times, and then actually seeing that's just another another thing going on, and that so it's not me, not mine. Seeing what happens then, because basically what's happened is we've the thing that we'll talk more about as the retreat goes on. But the thing that happens is we've then attached without realizing it to the sense of coldness or distance or disconnection, and we've owned that and solidified it that way. So just kind of seeing that's just another phenomenon happening, and we can let go that way too. Mm, that's it a, feels nice to, and I know that it'd be very easy to do the anatta on that <laughs> if that makes sense. So try, try, yeah, yeah good. Um, one thing I want to throw out as well is so with these three characteristics and and uh, because we're using them as kind of uh, I don't know what really what the I was going to say springboards but that's not really the right word it's they're avenues they're tunnels so we're we're progressing with them but part of that is and I'm putting this out for you, begin to notice very specifically, as specifically as you can, what happens uh, when you engage in these practices. And just anything you notice is going to be important. So really, really kind of, sometimes things happen and a person doesn't kind of, it doesn't seem significant, so we don't kind of note to ourselves, oh, that was interesting. Um, So I'm I'm asking you to be specific. Could that be something quite? 
anything. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Just put something quite short. It's the actual period. Yeah, 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 yeah. It might be just a glimpse of something. Absolutely. Just begin to notice. So we're we're interested in what happens uh, to the whole texture of experience and self, and, and you know, when we do that. Um. I wonder if I should just stop there, actually. Uh, I've got more to say, but is that, that's... I seem a little bit tired, so I think I'll stop there. Um, So, yes, absolutely. In other words, what's important with this anatta practice, um, and it's interesting, last year almost no one took it up, and this year quite a few people took it, which is great. Um, it's just a way of looking. Whatever helps us get to that way of looking. So it could be, as I saying, not me, not mine, you've got a quiet label going, could be not self as a label, could be no label. It's just that you find that way. It could be the noting actually helps uh, helps set up that relationship with things, which is a relationship of n- non-identification. Is that the way that particular exercise uh, practice was conceived? Um, I think I had a few things. When the primary thing it had in mind was just actually being clear what was going on. It's sort of a very basic mindfulness exercise. Like just, if there's thinking going on, know that thinking is going on. For some people, it ends up kind of tripping over its own feet and getting in the way. For other people, it will actually progress into a sense of like the kind of thing that you're talking about. It actually or impermanence or something else, it will actually naturally evolve into a kind of sense of three characteristics. But then, if you pursue it at that point, the same practice has got a slightly different subscript. It's actually then more an anatta practice, and that's what we want in terms of this retreat. So it's not just an exercise in mindfulness and being clear what's going on in the moment, but actually it, you're using it primarily as a way of looking and, and uh, encouraging the mind into a different relationship with what's going on. Yeah, so great if it works. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Oh, which what, what was happening? The noting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, um, for me, I know I'm doing things differently. Okay. But I can't name what they are. I can't say it's A, B, or C. It's, I don't know. I. I can't name which practice uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. And um, uh, I, I, it feels like when I try to do that... Yeah, be clear, you mean, about which it is. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it defeats okay. the purpose. Okay, so maybe when we meet an interview, we can go into more specific... And you, if you just describe to me yeah. when we meet what you're doing, I can have a sense of... Yeah. And that, and, I mean, yeah. is it important that I know no, which what, one is which? Um, Yes and no. I mean, what's really the most important thing is that we're 
having a sense of some relief or release coming out. And if that's the case, then basically what's gone on is that there's some degree, some way in which the clinging or craving in relationship to experience has been lessened. Now, that's what's important. And um, that's what's most absolutely most fundamentally important. Um, So that's going on. And maybe when you describe to me when when we meet, I can say, oh, that sounds like da-da-da. But that's, that's... I would say at this point, less important. And the important, is the important thing is that you have this sense of relief and release, and also that you have a sense, and I'm not sure if I said it clearly enough tonight, that it's something that can, you have a sense of, actually, this could go really quite deep. You know, I could, I could develop this. And then begin, as I just said, begin to notice what happens to self, but also to experience and the whole thing, the whole show, what happens to the show when I do this. Because this this relates to the nature of perception, the emptiness of perception we're going to get into. So, the other stuff is kind of details, and you can let me try and figure it out if you want when we meet. That's no problem. But that, if you feel good about that, then that's great. Yeah, because I mean, otherwise I can get technical about this. Yeah. Okay. Try don't and, and don't worry about it. Yeah. Focusing on the practice. Yes. Yes. I can. I'm going to start to say, well, does it go in this pigeonhole? This yeah. One, or don't this don't, one? don't then don't worry about it. What you want is a practice that you have a sense of this is working. Yeah. Great. This is working, and I can feel yeah. it working. I can also feel a sense of its potential, yeah. or that it has some potential to deepen and develop in subtlety, etc. As I said, and and the rest, yeah, you can leave up to people like me. And maybe yeah. it'll come. <laughs> it'll come over time, but right now. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Okay. Don't worry about it. So, um, as I said earlier, tonight's a talk that I, again, you might feel like, well, I know all that, or it's obvious, but uh, it comes up, 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 so often, and sometimes it comes up, we don't even know it's coming up, and and so hopefully it's something you can keep within the field of awareness for for the rest of the retreat, you know, these kind of uh, issues. Okay. So, Virginia, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys, well, I could ask you now, or I could ask you in a few days' time. When would you like to be asked? (laughs) (laughs) Now? Okay. Um, So, um, you don't need to record this. (laughs) Um, So, on this retreat, usually what happens about now or a little later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.